This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 24 of the Equestrian Legends Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, presented by Pessoa. I'm Glenn the Geek, and our guest this week is United States driver Mickey Bowen. But first, a word from Pessoa. The name Pessoa is legendary in equestrian circles. During his phenomenally successful career as a rider, Nelson Pessoa set his sights on creating the ultimate in saddle design. Not satisfied with the perfection of balance, aesthetics, and craftsmanship, Nelson's goal was to provide riders of every level the opportunity to train and compete in a true competition-level saddle, a saddle that would be an aid to their balance and riding style while offering a comfortable fit for most any horse. Most importantly, Nelson felt that the saddle was a tool that the riders should not miss out on because of price. With these goals, the modern-day Pessoa was born and has come to encompass saddles, strap goods, horse boots, and blankets. Riders and their horses come in all shapes and sizes. Pessoa realizes this, and they are proud to introduce the new AO AMS, a saddle for everybody and every horse. Made of the finest grained English leather, the saddle features an exchange-adjustable tree system, three AMS synthetic wool panel options, and four flap options. For the horse, go beyond an adjustable tree by providing the right panel depth and shape. The new Pessoa AO AMS features synthetic wool flocked panels specifically designed for particular horse conformations. All panel types are able to be further adjusted by a saddle fitter. To learn more about the Pessoa AO AMS and all of the other fine products at Pessoa, ask your local retailer or visit them online at PessoaUSA.com. That's PessoaUSA.com. Mickey Bowen was born in 1936 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her dad served in the cavalry and brought that love of horses to the family, and Mickey began her love of ponies at a young age. That love of ponies stuck with her as she progressed through life, and she began driving and breeding Welsh ponies and has driven a single, pair, tandem, and four-in-hand of Welsh ponies. Mickey was a founding member of the American Driving Society and served on its board of directors for the first 20 years. She was also influential in the beginning of the Brandywine Valley Driving Club, and she is very proud to have been executive director and chef to keep of the United States Driving for the Disabled for 20 years. Mickey is a large R judge for all driving disciplines for the ADS in both pleasure shows and combined driving and the only international large R judge for driving for the disabled in the United States. Besides judging and competing at national competitions, Mickey has judged in Europe and served on the ground jury of the first and second World Disabled Championships, and in Canada at the Canadian Classic and Royal Winter Fair. For pleasure, Mickey drives a four-in-hand of Welsh Halflinger Cross Ponies. Mickey was married and has three children, John, Bonnie, and Anne, and several grandchildren. Her stature is less than five feet, but that has not stopped her in anything she has attempted. Here now is Mickey Bowen. Well, hi, Mickey, and welcome to the Equestrian Legends show. I'm so excited to have you as the first driver as part of the Equestrian Legends series. I'm flattered and almost intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be intimidated. Although you are in good company. I know you went back and listened to some of the episodes and and, uh, there have been some fascinating people. And you're one of them. When I did my research on who to ask as the first driver here in the United States to be part, your name kept coming up over and over again. So so I, I so appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Now, tell us where you live now. Where, where are you at right now? I live in Unionville, Pennsylvania, and I have been here for the last 25 years, probably. So you're in the heart of horse country there in Pennsylvania. Yes. And uh, prior to that, I lived in Springfield, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is just east of here. 
Uh, and that's where I raised my children, in Springfield, Pennsylvania. And I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the city of Philadelphia. Oh, right in the city? Right in the city. Oh, yes. We were, we were city kids. Uh, and we kept our pony uh, when we had it, when I was younger, at a livery stable uh, in Cobbs Creek Parkway and paid $3 a week board. Wow. <laughs> let's go mm-hmm. back to those times. Let's start, let's start there. Tell me a little bit about your parents and, and your family when you were you know, growing up, young, when you were real young. Um, well, when I was very young, um, we lived in southwest Philadelphia, which is near the Cobbs Creek Parkway, and it was uh, very much like the suburbs would be today. It, w- it was not center city Philadelphia with the skyscrapers. Uh, but we could get on a trolley car at the corner of our street and in a half hour be in the center city, uh, center city Philadelphia with skyscrapers. Uh, my mother was a stay at home mom, as all mothers were in those days. My father, um, uh, during the war, my father worked, uh, at Hog Island near the airport in Philadelphia, loading ammunition on, uh, on ammunition ships, and World um, War II. Yeah, World War II, and prior to between twenty nine and twenty seven and thirty six, he had been in the uh, in the army and was a cavalryman, and that's where the horse connection came. My father was a cavalryman, so he came to he brought that love of horses to the family then. Uh, yes, not to my mother, <laughs> just to my brother, <laughs> my brothers and, and me. <laughs> so when you were young, you were growing up, uh, the, the, was the pony living in the yard or you said it was at a livery, it was uh, away from it was at a livery state. It was at a livery stable about five city blocks away. We had to walk down through the park to get there. And what kind of pony and was it? It was just a grade pony, uh, a mare and her name was Katie. Um, she was originally uh, bought for my brother. She was my brother's pony. And when my brother decided that he wanted to get a motorbike, uh, he sold pony rides to pay for his motorbike. <laughs> and then, you know, he had faster transportation. So I sort of fell into the pony by default. <laughs> he wasn't going to take care of it? You had to? Uh I didn't have to. Um, my mother would have been very happy if the pony had just been sent packing immediately. But, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes those things take time. And, uh, and I just lucked out. I had access to the pony. And I really enjoyed it. I really loved it. But did nothing um, formal. Did nothing. I never had any instruction except for my father. Uh, and my, father, my father's attempt at teaching was... Well, if it's too hard, don't do it. It shouldn't be hard. um, But I did learn a lot from from my dad, um, just from listening and uh, and watching. If you you could watch my father. uh, My father had wonderful hands. And if, if you could just watch my father, you could learn so much. Now, this was a livery near a city, obviously. Was there a lot of other kids your age? So was it, was it fun to go over and just hang out with the other kids and, and play horsey? Uh, no, uh, not, not really. Uh, most of the kids there uh, were boys. Um, girls didn't do a lot of the things that girls are free to do today. And, and there was nothing organized at the barn. There, there were no lessons, nothing like that. And you just went over and you got your pony ready and you rode. There was no ring to ride and you had to go out into Cobbs Creek Parkway to get to the bridle path to ride. And um, so th- there was nothing formal. And I, I think the only thing I really learned was how to survive, <laughs> how, how not to fall off, how not to let her run me under a tree. Um, <laughs> Which is what most kids learn when they have that pony. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But they were all very valuable lessons, very valuable lessons that I used much later on. Now, were you a studious Uh, child? Did you like school? I did like school. I loved school. Um, I had um, um, 
my introduction to music was through school, basically. Uh, and I'm I'm not an accomplished musician, but I I do love classical music and and learned that at school. Um, I enjoyed all of my friends at school, and um, I I did love school. Now, did you end up going to college after high school? I did not, okay. and because of my age, that I was born in 1936. So do the math. Uh, uh, it, it, it was not uncommon where um, it, where I lived and where I came from in that day and age for girls not to go to school. It, you didn't even expect, most of us didn't even expect it. Right. It was more the exception than the rule at that point. It was much more the exception than the rule. Actually, after the second, none, none of, when when that attitude began to change was after the Second World War. Uh, and men came home, and the men who never had access to college had access to college through the GI Bill. And so there was a lot more people getting college educations then, and, and jobs became more competitive, and so that you had to go to college, that kind of thing. But women were not really encouraged to go to college until after Sputnik went up. When Sputnik went up, this country was terrified that the Russians got into space before us. Mm-hmm. And they took a very serious look at our educational system and didn't necessarily like what they saw. And that was when everyone was encouraged to go to college and they saw the need for programs to help finance people get to college getting to college and that sort of thing. That was when the real surge of education uh, for women came because I guess they thought that it doesn't matter whether the brain is male or female if, it's a sci- if they have a scientific bent, we need them. Right, you know? right. Now, mm-hmm. you grew up, you were born uh, in 36, was at the end of the Depression, well, sort of heading toward the end of the Depression, and, you know, right before World War II. Do you have any memories of, of World War II? You were pretty young then. I do. Well, I was nine when the war was over, so I remember, uh, I remember VE Day and I remember VJ Day. Uh, I remember when President Roosevelt died, there was a railroad behind our house. Uh, and the, I remember us going up on that viaduct and standing there, all of the neighbors, everyone went up there and watched the train go by that was carrying FDR's body from Washington to New York. Hmm. And everyone cried. It was, a, it was a terrible tragedy. And as far as the beginning of the war is concerned, I remember my mother's family, her uh, brothers and sisters and my mother and my brother and I all sitting in my grandmother's living room listening to FDR's address. And I remember it especially because everyone was crying. All of the people around me who were the people who took care of me were crying. Right. And I remember that. Um, I mean, I have that mental image in my mind as clear as if it were yesterday. How much of that uh, experience that your parents had growing up through the Depression and then through World War II, how much of that experience do you think affected the way you lived your life later? Oh, my family was profoundly um, affected by the, by the Depression. My mother and father, my mother died at 99 three years ago, and until the day she died, she, the way she spent her money and the way she looked at things was, um, you know, was, was strongly affected by the Depression. I, For instance, yeah. my, my father, I think the fact that I'm such a dreamer is because my father was a dreamer, but my father, because of his experience during the Depression, thought that the things that he dreamed were just pipe dreams. Uh, when I had dreams, I thought, oh, you know, but then again, I got married and we went, my husband and I went through that period when if you worked hard, you could do well and life started to change. And so my dreams were somewhat attainable. And when my children dreamed, they could be goals. Right. 
that was the difference, I think, uh, the generational difference there. That was the generational difference that I saw in, in just the three generations that I've experienced. Right. Well, that, let's, let's go through childhood now. You, you grew up riding the pony, and w- did driving come into play at that point, or was that much later in life? Uh, no, driving did come into play. My father uh, built um, a two-wheel cart. Um, I, I don't know. Did I mention to you that uh, the pony was, she was a difficult pony. Uh, and so my father built a cart on, on an automobile axle, axle, and his comment was, she'll never turn this over. <laughs> <laughs> I could just picture this, too, by the way, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so here we had these, you know, this this two wheel automobile axle that he built. <laughs> yeah, and he built a body on it that was very, very much like a governess cart, except that it had wooden slatted sides. My father was a carpenter; it was not crude, um, and uh, it was it was very much, you know, bench seats like a governess cart. Remind you a lot of the back of a wagonette, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, you know, that was our cart. My brother was more of a driver than I was um, because by the time I started to do very much with the pony, putting two would have been, uh, I wouldn't have had enough help. And, you know, it was easier to put a saddle and bridle on and go. Right. But I did have that experience. And, and even at that, even though um, my father, you know, dubbed this carriage as being not able to be turned over. We had our moments. My um, my oldest brother was driving one time in a big field, and I was sitting in the back with my youngest brother, who was only a couple of years old at the time. And the pony took off, and my oldest brother screamed, Get the baby out of here! Well, how was I going to do that? So I rolled him in my coat, and I just leaned out over the back and rolled off. And the, my oldest brother, Bob, stopped the pony and came back to pick me up. And he said, don't you dare tell Mother about this. I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that's kind of... Now when you think back on it, you probably cringe. <laughs> I, well, at one point, after I had horses and my children had ponies... I remember having a conversation with my father and saying, Daddy, I know you were trying to get rid of us. I've got it now. (laughs) (laughs) And we laughed about it, but that pony was a, she was a handful. Did you, was there another horse in your life as you were going through high school and then? No, because uh, during my teenage years, once we didn't have the pony anymore, um, and I was into my teenage years, I only went to the livery stable and rented a horse for a dollar fifty an hour, and that would be um, sporadic Saturdays during the nice months. And then uh, between fifty-five and sixty-one was when I married and had my children. So I didn't really get back to doing anything organized until sixty-three, sixty-four, around then. After so, my children were born. So horses were out of your life for that period of time, the time from when you Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. I would still go to the Devon Horse Show. I would, I would still see the coaching classes and dream. Um, and, um, but I, I wasn't doing anything organized at all uh, until I finally started to ride. And, oh, my goodness, when I started to fox hunt, I loved it. And I was, I was like a... I was, you know, I loved every minute of it. And you had three children during that period of time, right? You had John, your son, and then you had two daughters, Bonnie and Anne. Yes. Mm-hmm. And how old were they when you, st- when, when you got back on that horse again? John was probably about eight. Um, I remember by the time Anne went to kindergarten, they were five, eight, and ten. And by that time, I had already purchased my first Welsh pony and was starting to breed a good mare here and there and owned a stallion. Uh, And I had also started driving uh, a pony, visitor statesman, who belonged to a man named Guy Clardy. And it was from Guy Clardy, really, that I learned the most 
about harnessing and uh, driving in the beginning, driving singles. And Statesman was a uh, a very typey Welsh pony, um, uh, one of those animals that is just charismatic that everybody notices. And uh, I I had quite a few wins driving him. Uh, Guy also had a very nice turnout, uh, and I learned about turnout from Guy. I learned how to look at a carriage and vision how it would show. And uh, I, I, I was able to stand back and see that turnout as it would look to other people. Why Welsh you know, ponies? I, why, why, why was that the, the uh, pony of choice at that point? Well... I'm not a hackney pony person. When they go up and down, it it scare it it, it unnerves me. Uh, they're beautiful and they're showy, and I respect what the hackneys can do. But and also, you have to remember that um, I was running a barn and I had three children. I I had to have what I felt was a quieter pony. And when you look at them, um, just simply their appearance. They're they're very balanced. They're they, they have pretty faces, nice tiny little muzzles, and those cute little ears. <laughs> and um, also, Anne, my youngest child, was my least horsey child. And I thought that if I bought her a pony, she would um, maybe I could get her interested. So I went to Mrs. Jean DuPont's sale field, and um, at that time, you could go to the sale field and buy anything for $400. And I bought a four-year-old gelding and brought him home, and he was, in the beginning, wild as a March hare. And, um, but we finally did, you know, we did get him broken to ride, and uh, Anne was riding him one day and fell off, and I remember sitting in the waiting room, uh, at the emergency room, and Anne screaming at me, you're the meanest mommy in the world. You made me ride that pony. And I thought, oh, yeah. And then I sent the pony away to be trained to drive, and that's how I started to drive. I had to do something with the pony. And then you got into breeding. Was that, was that something that just happened or a conscious decision you actually wanted to breed? I did. I did because um, I... I just thought by that time that Welsh ponies were the neatest thing since bubblegum. And so I, I wanted to see if I could breed a few ponies. Uh, and um, my, my thought was that um, if you could breed a few quiet Welsh ponies that were really good for children as starter ponies, that would be a great thing. Um, but my husband said to me after... Um, after, I guess, about three years when I still had all the ponies that I ever bred because they were too cute to let go. Mickey, please don't try to make money. I can't afford it. <laughs> I love that quote, by the way. You've told me that before, <laughs> and I love that quote. Yeah. Every horse husband should learn that at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I never, he was a very witty man, very witty man. And, and, some and he of the proved you he right, said. I believe. <laughs> he proved himself right <laughs> yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and you that all... was pretty much how I got into the Welsh ponies. And then, you know, dry, I drove a single for quite a while, and I had three very nice single ponies. Um, and, you know, then you start thinking about a pair. And it took me a while to get a pony to match Penny, uh, but I finally did. And then I start, started to think about a four-in-hand, but at that time a four-in-hand was still... You know, I mean, it hadn't even gone from the pipe dream to the dream yet. It was still a pipe dream. Now, were you taking and, lessons from anybody at that point, or were you self-taught? Uh, at this point, I was still pretty much self-taught, uh, but I was still gleaning everything I could from Guy Clardy, um, who who was very, very good with ponies and um, had has had for a long time and still has a, a good breeding program. He breeds the Clarwood Welsh ponies, and they're very well. Re- they're a very well respect- respected line in the Welsh pony world. 
And how big was now? This is back in the the early to middle to late sixties, correct? That we're talking about at this point. Yes. Well, now we might be up to the to like the seventies. And how how prevalent were were driving competitions at that point in the United States of any kind? That's very interesting. There were four major shows, so I could fox hunt all season and get my horses ready for the hunter trials. Do the hunter trials. And then take the ponies out of the field and start getting ready for the shows. The first one was Devon, which is the end of May. And then we had one in Stony Brook, Long Island, and one in Fairfield, Connecticut. And then in uh, the fall, we had a drive to the Pennsylvania Hunt Cup, which in this area everyone loves to do. Mm-hmm. That was the season. And then, of course, the Hunt Cup was in November, so now I'm fox hunting again. And, uh, you know, for the first several years, that was, that was kind of how it went. We kind of uh, missed that little part, too, about you fox hunting, because that was a big part of your life, fox hunting. Oh, it was. Oh, it was. I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. Who'd you hunt with? Mm-hmm. I hunted with the Radnor Hounds. I was a member at Radnor. And my children hunted with me. My two oldest children hunted with me. And the Radnor hunt, I, I'm familiar with that, having been to Radnor before. It's it's beautiful country. Of course, it wasn't as built up uh, back then as it is now. No, but I, I was just driving through there the other day, and, and Radnor has developed in a very nice way. It still gives a very country feeling. And um, a lot of the big estates, two of the big estates that I know of, were bought by M. Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. And had been kept open. And, so, and rather, you, you guys used to travel, you used to uh, visit other hunts and things too. At that point in time, if I remember, uh, yes, we would have joint meets with Pickering, yeah. and uh, and and we would go to Fair Hill once a year, and it was it was really wonderful. And were you and riding wh- the the Welsh ponies? What were you riding at that point? Oh no, no, I I, I didn't hunt my ponies. Uh, I I hunted. Uh, the best horses that I could afford, and, you know, the, the later ones were better than the earlier ones, and I learned from all of the horses that I had. Uh, I, I learned good lessons from the, the first one. The first horse that I had was a great jumper, but it was a big, raw-boned horse. Not wouldn't even be considered a lady's horse by any standards even then. Uh, but he was available to me and safe, and uh, I pretty much learned to hunt on him, a big bay horse named Irish, and um, each horse I got, I sort of upgraded, um, and sometimes I had as many as three, because I hunted three days a week. I absolutely loved it. You, you certainly did, and my wife is a hunter too, so I know exactly what you're talking about, that passion mm-hmm. to go out there and uh, run fast, jump high. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was what it was. It was <laughs> exciting. It was really, really great. Now, at some point here then, and if we're up to the early 70s and you're driving and you're hunting and, and you're doing all of that, you were a, a, a part of the creation and the founding of the American Driving Society. Tell us about the beginning of that. How did that come to be and why? Um, I was a founding member of the American Driving Society, but I did not have anything to do with the organizing of it. Um, that basically, uh, Philip Hoffman was um, the first president. And one of the big movers and shakers at that time was the first secretary, and his name was Robert Heath. And it was he and um, Jack Weir, uh, who was all also based in that New York, New Jersey area, and um, Craig Kellogg's father, father, Charlie Kellogg, uh, they were the people who put their heads together and decided we needed an organization, we we needed to have one set of rules that everybody could go by, so that, um, you know, at that point, anyone who was knowledgeable about driving at all could be asked to judge a show. Um, but we weren't being judged by any one set of standards. And uh, it, 
I think that uh, Phil Hoffman and um, Jack Weir and um, Charlie Kellogg, um, they, they just all realized that we needed an organization to draw us all together to make it so that we had a common front to present when we wanted to um, have shows ad driving and that sort of thing. And driving at that point in in America was starting to pick up, wasn't it? it was, there were there were more drivers coming back into play at that point. Yes, there were many more drivers coming back into that play, particularly in this area, particularly in this area. And um, it was um, that particular meeting to organize the ADS was held uh, at the Fairfield Hunt Club. Um, in conjunction with the driving show, pleasure driving show that was put on every year at Fairfield. And um, one of the things that I remember particularly about it was that Mary O'Rourke, Jamie's mother, had the concern that we would start a system that we we would all be point chasing. And she said, "Um, I, I would never want to see that happen to driving. And because of that is why... Driving still does not have cash prizes. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mary, Mary, and Jamie. Jamie was still a kid, but he's been involved since he he was driving tandem when he was nine years old. Driving tandem well when he was nine years old. Now I know sometimes in the beginning of associations like this and and you know organizations like this, it's a bumpy road the first couple of years because you 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 know anytime you get more than two people together you have differing opinions. Was it that way with the American Driving Society or was it more? Was it was it a smoother? What do you remember it being smoother than that? I remember it being fairly smooth. I really do um, because it it was and is. A comparatively small group. I mean, it, it's we don't have the kinds of numbers that the USEF has. Right. And I was on the board of directors for the first oh my goodness, almost fifteen years. I was a member of the board of directors, and our meetings would be twice a year, and they were always, um, they were they were always. They always went along smoothly, and we accomplished a great deal. And is that the point, too, when you started uh, getting more into competitions and becoming more competitive yourself? Uh, yes. I was never really competitive in combined driving, but I, I did do, you know, I took, I wrote some things down in uh, preparation for this because I thought, you know, I don't want a lot of dead air time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know. And um, I showed at Devon and did well with my single ponies at Devon. I did well with my with pairs at Devon uh, in the pony division. Um, but I never really got into combined driving too much. First of all, in the beginning of combined driving, the only show, the, the first one, uh, was in 1970. The first myopia mm-hmm. was the first big organized combined driving event in the United States. And uh, that was in 1976, the bicentennial year. And I went to that and I competed. And that was the first time I had ever competed in a full-fledged three-day format. And I did that with a single pony um, I think I was fourth. I'm not sure. Uh, later on, about three or four years later, I competed with a four-in-hand of ponies. But other than that, um, I, I really did not compete a lot in combined driving. Uh, I did become involved in a lot of other ways and subsequently became a judge. And um, so I was... I was involved in other ways, but I was not really uh, a high-performance driver. Right. Where did you, you, you did, you did eventually get into foreign hand. Who helped you with that? Oh, that, what a story that was. 
Uh, I had a pair of Welsh ponies, Penny and Piper. And Penny was my original $400 sale field pony. And um, I got Piper somewhere along the way, mainly because he matched. And they did well. I, I did well with those ponies. Um, and I was hunting and hunting because, you know, two and two makes four. So I was always hunting for other ponies. Uh, but it's very hard to match even gray Welsh ponies. It's very hard to get them to go alike and, you know, disposition and, and all of that. I went to the Martin sale. And uh, during one of the breaks, I went out to a picnic table and sat under the tree. And um, Sybil Ducart was there. And I had known Mrs. Ducart because she also bred Welsh ponies. And she also had a pair of Welsh ponies. Um, But other than that, she had judged me a few times. But other than that, I didn't know Mrs. Ducart very well. And she said to me, how is your pair going? And I said to her, they're going very well, Mrs. Ducart. And uh, I said, I, I really enjoy them. I said, I looked for a few other ponies. I'd love to get a four together. I said, but, you know, I, I just am not getting it off the ground. And she said, well, my pair is also going very well. And why don't you come down and we'll put our pair together, our pairs together. And I thought, this is wonderful. So what we did, we talked about it later, and um, we got Tom Ryder to come to Pennsylvania. We um, spoke to a man who had uh, an indoor arena. It was in the wintertime. We spoke to a man uh, in the Radnor area, Saunders Dixon, who had an indoor arena, and he said, oh, yes, by all means, bring the ponies come and this is when the ring will be empty you're welcome to it any time Tom Ryder came up and put our pairs of ponies together and um, we continued doing it once a week and having Tom Ryder for maybe two months and then we were on our own both of us were driving the four in hand and I would trailer my two ponies down to Sybil's farm go down in the afternoon, stay overnight and drive the next morning and come home. And we did that once a week. We did that for four years, perhaps. Had she ever done a four? Had, had Mrs. Ducard ever done a four? No. So they were both learning together. <laughs> we, we pretty much learned it together, yeah. And those ponies were quick as bunnies. I mean, we really, we really learned on those ponies. And we both loved it. We both just loved it. You know, it was it was just for me driving four in him was just a wonderful dream that, you know, might have been a pipe dream. Um, but for that chance meeting at that picnic table under the tree. And more important than that, Sybil became a very important person in my life. Sybil was my mentor. And she was uh eighteen years my senior my junior. No, my senior. Uh, she was, she came out the year that I was born. She came out in New York the year that I was born. Hmm. And she just had, well, first of all, she was an extraordinary person. She had great vision and great energy and, um, and access. You know, she had all of those friends in New York. She, um... And she never hesitated. When she wanted to do something, she just said, let's do it. And I'd say, oh, but, but, but. And she'd say, well, why can't we do it? Come on, let's do it. And the two of us really did a great deal together that I would never have done otherwise. She was a fascinating person, and she actually wrote a a couple of kids' books, too, if I remember right. Um, She did, yes, she did. Um, Well, I think more in more important than that, she was the founder of Driving for the Disabled in Maryland, which later became United States Driving for the Disabled. I think we lost her in, what, 2005, was it? It was 2005. I believe so. I think she was in her 80s. I believe it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
2005. So, and that leads, you, you, you made a beautiful transition there because that was the next thing on my list to talk to you about, was something that's very dear to your heart and you've been involved with for many, many years, and that is the United States Driving for the Disabled. Tell us about that. Um, well, Sybil was the founder and president of Driving for the Disabled, and I worked for Driving for the Disabled. I was the, the secretary and the, well, Sybil and I did everything together, and it, it didn't matter much what our title was. We were the, we were the ones who had to, whatever our Yeah, our but there's two people part of it, were, you know, do everything. And I could, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, we started out um, driving at the McDonough School, and um, the Multiple Sclerosis Society uh, would van people to us, and we would give them driving instructions in special carriages that accepted wheelchairs. And um, we worked very hard at it, and we had a very good um, volunteer base that stuck with us like glue. Um, well, Dana Bright, who was also one of you know our our um, most successful judges right now, um, she was one of our volunteers that was with us for years, and. Um, we just worked quietly um, and chipped away at things. And um, then it was in 1993 that um, drivers were invited to go to a world championship. Um, and uh, driving for the disabled was pretty much responsible for organizing the disabled drivers in the United States and creating a selection process and helping those people to get there. Now, I know that you have uh, you've made many friends along the way in driving for the disabled. What, what has that meant to you, being part of that over, over all these years? Uh, well, it was the first time that um, I made friends internationally, really. Um, well, not just friends and acquaintances. But I worked with people internationally. It was the first time I interacted on a professional basis internationally. And, and you can imagine the growth that came, the personal growth that came from that. Right. Um, and it was, um, I'll tell you, it makes you stop complaining because you, you have an ache or a pain. I mean, you see the carriage that it takes those people just to get up in the morning and the process that they have to go through just to be ready to walk out the door and um, do what needs to be done in a day, a day in your life. And, uh, you know, a headache or an ache or a pain becomes insignificant to you. Now, do you, are you still involved with, with the organization? No, I'm not. No, when I retired um, was just about the time that I got this last four-in-hand of ponies that I have, which is the best team of ponies I've ever had. Uh, and uh, I wanted to retire and drive. And I know that uh, before we go on here, uh, before, before we uh, go, go into, more, uh, into more recent times, I know that Mrs. Dukart, one of the things that I remember, and this is I read this a long time ago, is that she was one of the teams that got to drive in the inauguration parade for President Reagan. I think it was his second term. Did you know her then? Were you part of that? I was there. Were I you? went down there. Oh, my goodness. What a day that was. Because, you know, it was, it was his first term, I believe, because it was when, um, when they released the hostages at the end of uh, Jimmy Carter's yeah, term. that would have been his first term then, yeah. Yeah, and so it was his first term, yes. And what happened was uh, we were stabled um, at a facility outside of the city, and everybody vanned in to Washington the morning of the inauguration. And our van was in the area of the uh, Washington Monument. And what happened was... Um, when the when the, the word came that the hostages were released, they cut the city off. You couldn't get in or get out. Security cut the city off. Huh. 
and you could not get in or get out of Washington, D.C. And we were just kind of stranded there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my daughter was there. My daughter, Bonnie, was there. And, of course, Mrs. Mrs. Ducart drove the ponies in the parade. And I was trying to, I had to walk two miles to the pickup truck to try to get the pickup truck and our supplies in it. Uh, and and I, don't, I didn't know Washington. I mean, it was, it was really something. And then we couldn't get out of the city after the parade, so we all had our horses on the lawn of the Washington Monument, and the fireworks started. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and Mrs. Ducart and I handed each of, the, each of, you know, our party a pony and said, don't let go under any circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> We've got these four great ponies on the lawn, and we're holding on for dear life. And the fireworks went up, and the ponies casually looked up and put their heads down and ate the grass. <laughs> yeah, they didn't care. <laughs> they had just been through a parade and, and with t- a million people lining the parade route. <laughs> right. Now, tell me, do you remember uh, the first time that you drove a coach and, and what, what a feeling that was? Because that had to be a dream at some point, too. And we should explain for the non-drivers out there, the coach, how do we explain the coach? It's, it's the very large vehicle that you see sometimes in parades and, and things where the drivers sit up way up top. Well, I think the best description of it for people who don't have any idea is it's what you see on a Christmas card. There you go. With four horses. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's you know, I mean, for the you know, for those who are totally uninitiated, that's yeah. the most relatable thing. The first time I ever drove a coach was in the warm up ring at Devon. Uh, I went over to Devon to see the classes, and Ann Leck was there with her hackneys, and she said, "Oh, Mickey, come up aboard! Come aboard!" And so I got up and we were sitting there chatting and she said to me would you like to drive my horses and I was dumbstruck and flattered (laughs) and eager and so I took the reins and um I drove probably for 10 minutes and it was the first time I'd ever driven a coach and you've done it a lot since then because I've seen many many pictures of you driving coaches well, the, the photograph that you see of me driving the coach, that is the old times, and it belongs to Mr. Harry Tootsie. And uh, in 2004, when they had the... Um, we should mention, to, for, for the uninitiated, too, and the driving, is that all the coaches have names. The, uh, the road coaches yep, have names. Yep. The park drags do not. Park drags were private vehicles, and they're painted in... Um, they're a sort of lighter-built... Uh, and finer, and they're painted in more subdued colors. The ones that you see with writing on them that says Bath to London or something like that, they were road coaches, uh, and they were commercial vehicles, and they have names. They all have names. Right. And um, Sybil's coach was the Hummingbird. It was a private road coach that she named the Hummingbird because it was small and traveled long distances, so she... She named it the Hummingbird. Um, and the coach that I drove um, in 2004 and 2005 um, is the old times, and uh, it belonged to Harry Tootsie. It does still belong to Harry Tootsie. Well, and was... we, we drove in Middleburg, uh, my horses in his coach, uh, for the uh, big sporting library drive that they had in 2004. And there were 31, 32 coaches, park drags, and four in hands there. And we'll post pictures of uh, that coach uh, on our website at equestrianlegends.com on this episode. And we, uh, I want, there's some things I want to get to, too, before we, before we run out of time here. And, uh, you know, we have so much that more that we could talk about. You've been a judge for so many years. There's a thousand entries on the Internet of you judging various shows. Uh, and, you know, you, you've also been a judge for disabled driving, you know, as well as USCF and ADS. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, there's been so much of that as part of your life as well. Uh, you, you did some judging, too, as I understand it, overseas in Europe and, and uh, for, for the World Dis- Disabled Driving Championships back in uh, the first and second of those, the very beginning of those. Yes. One was in Wolfsburg, Germany, and the other was in, was in the Netherlands, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then the Royal Winter Fair, which is something I've never attended and- but always wanted to. Yes, the Royal Winter Fair. Which, uh, you know, over my judging career, uh, first of all, the judging, I'm, what a learning experience. I, I, that does sound backwards, I know, but oh my goodness, what a learning experience judging has been, and I love it. I, I really enjoy judging. Um, but when I was called to do the Royal Winter Fair, I thought, oh my goodness. And, and I was like the... You know, you see pictures of tourists looking at the Empire State Building in New York. Yes, <laughs> that was you. <laughs> That's it. even more so than going to Europe. You know, and um, it was it was just wonderful. And I did not judge coaching there. I judged the Welsh ponies oh, okay. both times that I went up. And uh, because I'm so local at Devon, uh, I was only called to judge the ponies in the marathon once at Devon. Uh, but I kept my Devon badge, and I kept my badge from um, from the Royal. Um, and those, other than that, I've I've never really, you know, the, those things, those identification badges come and go, and you have them in the drawer, and then you clean it out, and they go. But I, the the two from the Royal and the one from Devon are in my jewelry box. You would have a thousand of them lining your wall if you had kept them all. Um. Yeah, well, it just never <laughs> occurred to me. <laughs> but, Meg, you know, being put on the spot to say, what have you done in your life? And thinking, yeah, well, what really have I done? You know, you get up every morning, you live your life, you do what you think you can. You you do have milestones, but, you know, they come and they go. And, um, you know, maybe I should have really saved more of my badges. <laughs> Well, I do. Speaking of uh, what have you done in your life and the, some of the other things uh, before we end here today, I have, I have a series of questions I like to ask at the end of every one of these interviews. And so I'm going to ask you those questions. The first one is, do you have any passions outside of horses? Um, I love classical music. Um, um, and I, I read a good bit. I particularly enjoy um, the, the history of uh, in England between the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine and um, through Elizabeth I. Um, And um, not very many people know it, but my family, um, we're from Philadelphia, of course, as I've said, and our family has been involved with the Mummers Parade in Philadelphia uh, for a long time. My grandfather... Yes, my grandfather, in fact, marched in the first 52 consecutive parades. Wow. Now, were they part of a costume division or a band? Or My, my grandfather played the trombone, and he was, he was, in, he was in a band. Uh, my father um, paraded in the comic division. My brother, both of my brothers, um, were active in um, in the fancy division, the fancy costume division, and that's where I marched. Uh, my youngest brother, who is a musician um, and who has designed and made costumes for the string bands, has become very involved in the string bands. Huh. So throughout the family, we have a, a broad uh, a broad experience. As I mentioned, though, in the in the intro, you know, Mickey is about maybe pushing five feet. So this is one way you could feel tall. You just made your costume bigger. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of that. <laughs> I, I always related being tall to platform shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I, that's so. Uh, you know, we grew up watching the Mummers Parade. I grew up in Pennsylvania, not too far from Philadelphia, so we grew up watching that. And I probably saw you strut your stuff right down, right oh, down. Oh, and and we can too. <laughs> you know, for the for the last several years, 
my daughters and uh, my my daughter Bonnie and I um, competed in, uh, in in a category that is called Trio Pantomime Clown. You have three clown costumes um, that match and three people march together, and you don't have to have a big headpiece. Um, it doesn't have to be cumbersome or heavy. And my daughter, Bonnie, is a very talented seamstress, too, and um, she makes the costumes, and they're, they're breathtaking. I mean, we've, we've come away with first prizes many times. Um, my daughter's very, very clever at that. The last costume she made were bees, and it was when our theme was Weeby Mummin. <laughs> and for those that don't know, the Mummers Day Parades help every year on January the 1st in Philadelphia, and it is always horrendous weather. It's either snowing, raining, freezing cold, or hot. It just it always seems to work that way. Uh, but it is, it's a, it's a one-of-a-kind, truly unique parade that's not held. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. It's Philadelphia folk art. Yep. It is, it is definitely that. Mm-hmm. Well, you may have already answered the next question then. Tell us something about you that most of the people in the driving community may not know about you. That would be the mummers. Yeah. That, that would be the mummers. I, mm-hmm. I, I figured I didn't know that either. Are you into mm-hmm. modern technology? Do you have the latest smartphone, iPads, etc.? No. I have a cell phone uh, that I find challenging from time to time. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> And I can go online and get my email and bring up my Facebook. And uh, I can do, in fact, I just learned to scan the other day. Um, Well, I was shown how to do it, probably have not retained it, because I have to do something repetitively to really retain it. Um, But I I don't think you could really call me computer literate, Um, although I... I do communicate by email for the last five or six years. Most of my judging contracts have come in by, via email, and um, most of my invitations to judge come through email now. So I've had to adapt somewhat. If you had it to do all over again, knowing what you know now, what is the biggest thing that you would change about how you lived your life? I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. I, I, I am most thankful that life to me is kind of an adventure. And some, some days adventures are good, some are bad, some are tolerable, some are less tolerable. But I've always been hopeful about life and I've always enjoyed life and I wouldn't change that. And I am thrilled that my youngest daughter has that same attitude toward life. And I, and I don't know if she realizes it or not, but I watch her sometime. And I think, thank goodness she's, she's like that. And Sybil was like that. Every day is an adventure. And, you know, and I'm, I have enough faith that I'll take today's and deal with it. And I know one of the things that's so satisfying for you now, you've done so much in your life, but one of the things that's so satisfying for you now is the fact that your son, John, is now driving with you, so you get to do that with him at this point. Yes, and my granddaughter rides, and she's into dressage, um, and uh, she has a lovely horse, and, uh, you know, that I, I get a great deal of satisfaction. And she's a third or fourth level horse, doesn't she, over at Jessica Rand's house? Yeah, yeah, well, the horse is now in Atlanta with her. She's graduated okay. college, and um, she's working in Atlanta and has the horse with her. Uh, yes, it is uh, a third-level horse at this point, I think. And, um, you know, that, that, that's very gratifying to watch, to, to see your children. I rode aside, and uh, that was so important at the time, and I didn't realize it, because when you ride aside, you ride with your body more than with your arms and you know, the it, it, body weight is so important, and that's also very important in um, in driving. A lot of people don't realize it, but the way you use your body is also very important in driving. And when I look at Elizabeth and I see her riding as well as she rides, and to see that she has 
advanced far beyond what I could ever do. Is uh, I I am just so gratified by that. I think you know, it's great when you can see the progression, when you can see, when you can see things marching on. And marching on leads us to our last question: What is still on your bucket list? What do you hope to accomplish in the future? You know, it's funny we talked about that. I. I have done so many things in my life that I never imagined would be possible that I don't have. I don't really have a bucket list. Uh, I I would perhaps like to see my son uh, get a pair of horses to replace my now aging ponies. Uh, I want to keep driving. Uh, one one thing on my bucket list. I guess I do have something on my bucket list for this year is. I want to get my four-handed ponies going well enough by the fall, uh, and I've asked Donna Bright if she would come out and if she would video me driving so that I have some record of me on the box seat with this particular team. You know, it's, that's something you don't think about in today's technology. You know, drivers today who are starting, you know, recently – have everything they do videotaped, but when you started driving, that was, you know, that was not a common thing. It was very expensive, and it was just not done. And the equipment was so cumbersome. Yeah, they were huge. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Mickey. We so appreciate you joining us today, and thank you for everything you've done for the driving world and to, to really bring the driving world into the modern era here in the United States. Well, and I thank the driving world for making my life what it was and for all the wonderful people I've met. <laughs>